Hello, and welcome to How They Did It with me, Darby Worley. Joining me on today's show is Allison Jaslow. Allison is with Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. You may recall that a couple of weeks ago, or a couple of episodes ago, I teased that Paul Rykoff would be on the show coming soon. And then a crazy thing happened. We were scheduled to talk, oh, this is probably going back about a month ago, and the night before our interview, Donald Trump no-showed on a debate to supposedly host a fundraiser for veterans. And so as you can imagine, Paul got very, very busy. And since that time, this election has just gotten nothing nothing less than completely and utterly bonkers. So Rykoff has been super busy. But you know what? Rykoff is on the TV all the time. You see him all the time. And Allison Jaslow is potentially someone you may not have heard from before. And she's got a lot of smart things to say about life, about um, being in service, about what it was like to be the boss of a bunch of men over in Iraq. Um, And she's had some other interesting jobs. She has served on Capitol Hill. She was press secretary to Jim Webb. I did not ask her about that job. I really wish I would have asked her about that job because you might remember Jim Webb from the early debates. That guy's got quite a personality. I would like to know more about what it's like to work for him, but I screwed up and I didn't ask about that. Anyway, we talked about lots of other um, interesting things and most especially how we, you and I, fellow civilian, um, can, can support our veterans as they come back from these seemingly unending wars. Let's take a listen. back a bit when you were when you were a kid did you know that you wanted to be a soldier so i actually consider myself one of the only success stories i know from uh career day i'm originally from northern virginia uh, just outside of uh, washington dc and in eighth grade it was the first year that you actually got to sort of explore new careers um instead of having you know people's parents come into your classroom Mm. uh so we had sort of a, a menu of places where we could select sort of careers to go visit for the day. And I'm telling you, I selected all the things where I thought I could get free food or toys. You know, you talk to the people who are a year ahead of you and figured out like the cool ones to go to. I didn't get any of my choices, but I ended up at Fort Myer, was just in awe of Fort Myer is also where the ceremonial units um, for the United States Army are. And just sort of like fell in love at that time with the army and was very intrigued and started looking into it deeper um, and and very quickly decided that that's kind of what I wanted to do in life. And so essentially, I I graduated high school thinking that I was going to be in the army for a career. Did you go straight to boot camp right after high school graduation? So I actually thought that I was going to enlist. Um, but in the process of sort of working through what options I wanted to take, um, ended up, you know, deciding that ROTC was the right fit for me. Um, so I went to a military school in uh, rural Missouri where I was an ROTC student um, and then graduated and was commissioned uh, a lieutenant following my four years in school. What was it like in the early in the early years of your of your training? Were there other did you have a lot of other women around you? Did you have good role models? Um, you know, I would say, honestly, um, most of my role models when I was in the military were 
male officers, Mm -hmm. uh, just in terms of like, you know, the people whose values I wanted to embody. Mm -hmm. Um, But part of that, you know, absolutely has to do with the blend of how many women are in the military versus men. I think it's a little under 10%. Um, I was, I was in the logistics core once I finally got into the army, um, where there's a, a little more women, uh, maybe a little over 10%. Um, but I would say it's, you know, probably one in 10 wow, are women yeah. most commonly. Wow. I did not know that. Um, you were, I think about to tell me about somebody in um, particular. Well, gosh, I mean, I, I would say my executive officer before I got out, <clears throat> um, was probably one of my strongest role models. Um, and he was for a male officer, you know, if you're, um, uh, specifically interested in how, like, you know, the experience of being a woman was, mm. he had no problem empowering and including um, myself and our, you know, my female counterparts, um, which is a great experience to have. And, you know, I think from a, you know, the the great thing about the military is, is it's a great, great equalizer, you know, and I think that it, women have, uh, have had a challenging road for sure. And I think we still have a long way to go, but uh, the United States military has always been an equalizer for, for people from privilege and people from rural and inner city backgrounds. And I think that it can be the same way for women. And it, and it has been, um, and it largely was in my experience. I think, you know, I've, I've run into my, you know, own set of challenges, but I don't know that they're very different from what, um, some of the first women who are in corporate boardrooms probably experience as well. You know, for me, many of my role models were just the leaders that I wanted to be versus, um, you know, wanting to be or emulate a female leader. Did you ever long for more um, company of, of women when when you were in when you were in active service? I think that there are days where potentially it would be nice, but um, you know, I think one of the nice things is with such a smaller community of of women, like the bonds are that much closer. I mean, I think a lot of people talk about how the people that they deployed with um, are brothers or sisters for life. Uh, But some of my uh, female counterparts and colleagues, um, those people were my roommates. You know, I have a very close friend who I was in officer basic course um, with, who I was stationed at Fort Carson with, who I then deployed with on my last deployment. And, you know, we'll be friends for life, even if, you know, we go in and out of contact together. Um, and so I think that, of, of course, we all want more people who look like us around us. Um, I've also come from a diverse background <clears throat> or community myself, though, so I'm also very comfortable in diversity. And, you know, I'd say at the end of the day, like, those females um, who I served with, I'm probably that much closer with because we were fewer. How did you get along with the men? I think I did pretty well. Um, I think it's is a case-by-case situation, uh, depending on the environment that you were in. I feel very fortunate to have, you know, like I mentioned, a lot of superiors who I think were very supportive. Um, then, you know, I don't want to pat myself too much on the back though, too. I think I definitely took an approach where I wanted to be seen as an equal. I think that there are a lot of women who are in the military like that. And I think that I garnered respect, um, for that approach too. Yeah. So, so recently women have been, I'm not, I'm not sure the right way to say this, but, but, but now women are allowed to serve in combat. Can you talk a little bit about your 
um, your Iraq deployment and what you were doing over there? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, what you're seeing now from a policy perspective is a recognition of something that's been happening for basically the duration of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. When I first deployed, I actually was a supply platoon leader, um, and that was in late 2004. Uh, I deployed the day after Thanksgiving. Um, When we got on ground, I took over some warehouse operations, but pretty quickly, those warehouse operations were contracted over given, you know, one of the unique things that happened in, in this in these particular conflicts is we contracted out a lot of things that soldiers used to do. So the first phase of my deployment was taking over warehouse operations, but within 60 days, it was taken over by Kellogg, Brown and Root. And my entire platoon was reclassified to be um, what they call a gun truck platoon. Um, But our mission was then shifted to be convoy security. So logistics convoys would travel in and around Baghdad. And we actually ended up taking uh, convoys that would go even to the far reaches of uh, northern Iraq as well. But I was stationed at Taji, which was a, I, I would call it almost a suburb of Baghdad, but it's about 20 minutes north. And our my particular platoon's mission was to make sure that um, supply convoys, and, and think about any supplies, whether it's petroleum tankers, which you're lucky if you can get those guys to go over 45 miles an hour, um, to just you know, regular trucks hauling goods or equipment um, around the city. And those convoys um, just aren't in a really great position to defend themselves. But, you know, uh, striking at our lifelines or our supply lines is a very effective tactic to sort of hamper the force, if you will. You know, if the soldiers can't get their bullets, um, they're not going to be able to fight. So they were definitely um, something that was sought after to attack. And every three or five vehicles, depending on the type of the convoy, my soldier's job was to make sure that the convoy was protected. So we had to fend off any attacks that came, had to stop, um, you know, lanes of traffic. Uh, If you think about it, Baghdad's a metropolitan area. Um, So if you're going through rush hour traffic, literally in Baghdad, it was my guys who had to go clear the road in a very aggressive fashion um, to make sure that the convoy could still make it through. So uh, definitely came under fire, definitely had um, soldiers who were injured and colleagues that um, unfortunately didn't make it home. And if he, if, if the average person doesn't call that combat, I don't know what else to call it. Yeah, I was just gonna, my yeah. What I'm what I'm hearing from you is that even though you weren't in a combat role, you could very quickly be thrown into combat at any moment on one of those runs. Yeah, well, I mean, quite frankly, I was shot at. My soldiers, you know, I'm not somebody who had a bomb go up on my vehicle, but I have one soldier who actually literally had two ID IEDs hit them at different occasions. Um, you know, inside convoys that we were on. And so we were actually in the midst of combat. I mean, if, if you're getting shot at and if you are driving in the night and you're seeing, you know, bullets actually light up in the night when they fly over you, you know, I don't know kind of what else to call that. What do you remember about that that incident? Like, what do you remember about what was going through your mind when that happened? Um, you know, it's really interesting, at least, you know, I can speak from my own perspective and I think everybody's... Um, The way that they conquered their mental challenge of combat is different. Um, I feel fortunate that I think I was able to get myself in a good place. But I think before I even deployed, like that's where you process a lot of the, you know, am I going to die 
um, what happens if I die sort of feelings. Um, and then when you're out there, you know, I was a platoon leader. It was my job to leave the gate and get back into the next gate and make sure that all my soldiers made it there, um, hopefully alive and hopefully in one piece. And so the second you roll out of the gate, like for me, a calm came over me because like that was my focus. Mm. You know, I think, uh, again, everybody probably responds a little differently, but for me, I mean, there is no greater priority than making sure that, um, you achieve mission success. And hopefully with everybody, um, like I said, making it from point A to point B as safe as possible. So after, after you had an incident like that occur, what was it like, like what kind of mind tricks or mind jujitsu do you have to do to achieve that sense of calm on the very next run? Um, you know, I think a lot of it in the military is about planning. Mm. Um, you spend a lot of time doing pre-combat checks and pre-combat inspections and doing dry runs and walkthroughs. Um, so by the time you go out the gate, like you are so well rehearsed that it's kind of amazing actually when you see a vehicle break down and, and everybody stops, which is not something you want to be doing when you know that you're a, a moving target. Um, but, you know, everyone stops and they execute because they already know what to do because you've already practiced. And hopefully like that was my job as a leader before we deployed and before we left the gate every time was to have everybody so well rehearsed that I didn't have to give them instructions while they were out there. You know, you're just overseeing the execution and worrying about contingency planning and sort of, you know, protecting in the moment, but that everybody does the drill as they've done so many times before and you pick up and you move. So how long, how long were you there? Um, the first time I deployed, I deployed the day after Thanksgiving uh, in 2004 and came back, I think, Halloween mm. in 2005. So um, like right around 11 months. Uh, the second time I deployed, I had the wonderful experience of deploying in, in January of 2007. Um, and gosh, less than a month, I think, into it or maybe somewhere a little after that, um, we found out I was there during the surge. Mm. Uh, so we found out that we were going to stay 15 months and I was there from January of 2007 through April of 2008, um, just shy of a full 15 months. Did you, were you able to stay in touch with people back home? Well, or what was that part like? The, my first deployment was, um, a little more of a challenge, um, to be able to, you know, actually be able to call back home. Um, and part of that had was mission driven and sort of what I was doing, but the infrastructure in 2004 was a lot different. Um, and at Taji where I was, than it was the second time I was deployed, I was at, um, Baghdad international airport or what they called the victory base complex, which is also where general Petraeus was. And so not only was it two years later, but, um, the infrastructure sort of supporting that particular base was a lot better. So it was easy to stay in touch. Um, at the same rate, uh, I don't think you're quite ensconced by the safety net that you have when you're back at home as you want to be. Um, so it's, it's unexpectedly trying. Even my second deployment wasn't nearly as dangerous as I just explained my first one was. Um, I was a little more on the base, but uh, sort of dealing with the, the nonstop environment of deployment while also not having 
you know, your personal safety net is a very trying experience. So when those, the time in between your deployments, were you active duty military? I'm not sure if I'm using the, the correct terminology, but it, were you doing army stuff in the time in between or did you go back into a civilian job and then get called up again? Um, you are using the right terminology. I was active duty. Um, I was stationed at Fort Carson. Mm-hmm. So I was, you know, doing full-time army, um, when I got back, which if you are working for an active duty unit, especially at the time that I was in, um, you were immediately trying to rehab your unit from deployment, um, which usually also meant uh, like not just, you know, figuring out how to to rebuild uh, things that you lost or bring them back from overseas and reconstitute um, sort of physical things. But it was also people. You get back, your unit purges, you have to get new people in, whether they're fresh out of, uh, you know, boot camp or advanced individual training, um, or just transferring from another unit. And then you have to, again, build sort of the, the team that you're expecting to deploy with. And ultimately I did deploy with again. So talk about that transition a little bit, um, transitioning out of deployment and into back into stateside life and, and, and what specifically what, um, when you say that they're, that they're rehabbing your people, uh, do they do some kind of like counseling or debriefing with you guys, you know, to get you back to, to kind of like ease your transition? How did that happen? So when you come back, you know, I don't know what they, um, what they call it these days. Um, but we used to go through something called SRP, which I think is this, I think it's soldier readiness program because technically you go through on your way out to deploy, um, which is, it's like this, this full gamut of a checklist where, it's not you're not just going through and making sure that you have your shots and making sure that you have you know that your physical capacity is fit for deployment, but uh, I mean it's everything from also making sure that you have your will, which is I will tell you that is an interesting experience. Talk about processing the fact that you can die when you're 22 and you're like, okay, I'm doing powers of attorney for you know my really good friend and figuring out how much uh, life insurance to leave to my sisters if I die and all that stuff. But on the back end, when you come back, you go through a similar process, which is also where they do some of the pre-screening to, to see if um, you know again if you've got any uh, physical wear and tear um, based on deployment that maybe also wasn't something that you complained about while you were overseas. Um, but where they do the initial screening for you know any mental effects of the war. You're also, and I don't know what they, again, what the standard is right now, but they try to stabilize units for 90 days afterwards. Um, you know, I think it's an initial 30 days where you are kept very close to the base and you do briefings and we continue, especially as, as leaders, to watch soldiers for signs of, um, you know, the wounds that are unseen, if you will. And then, you know, people get to spend time with their family and then go travel and take some R&R. But we usually try not to even send people to different units or allow them to move you know, to their next duty station or even leave the military for a full 90 days if possible. Um, for me specifically, I would say that, uh, you know, I mentioned before, uh, I'm pretty thankful that I have a mental constitution where despite some of the things that I experienced or saw, um, I, I was able to sort of manage that pretty well, but it is funny, you know, some of the the habits that you develop when you're overseas. And I think that, um, a lot of veterans, male or female would have, uh, similar stories to tell, but, you know, I mentioned my first deployment, I was doing convoys all the time. So it's, 
it was amazing the habits you develop while you're doing that that are sort of out of self-protection. And so when you're driving back in the States afterwards, which I don't think I shook it for months um, after getting back, but you're looking at literal road debris or trash on the side of the roads, wondering whether it's a bomb, you know, or worrying that if people are driving too close to you, that they're going to blow up and things like that. And, um, and I wouldn't say that like, you know, my, my mental state was, uh, I, I was in pretty good shape when I came back despite things, but it's, it's a, uh, it's a self-protection mechanism, a little less like post-traumatic stress that you probably read about in certain places. And just, you know, I had adapted to this environment of, being very cautious of everything around me. And that's, it was the asymmetrical battlefield that they, that we were fighting in. You know, you didn't know if the woman in the car next to you, who you wanted to to hesitate and not shoot um, because they were too close and they weren't listening to you to quite literally blow herself up. And you had to act and adapt to thinking and suspecting everyone. Yeah. Well, it's just like the way that when you, when you're in a habit, like when my husband comes, my husband's from New Zealand, and when he goes to visit over there, when he comes back over here, without fail, the first couple of days he tries to drive on the left side of the road. I think it's like yes. that, <laughs> right? Totally. Yeah. So how? So um. So when you were done with your second deployment, did, did you stay in the army for a while, or when did you when did you come back over into quote unquote civilian life? Although that's not really probably the right word. I I got out pretty quickly. Um, technically because of the. Uh, the surge and the 15-month deployment, I was stop-lost for a little bit. Um, But, you know, it was actually an incredibly difficult decision for me. I mentioned um, before that I thought I was going to be in the Army for a career, uh, but for a lot of different reasons, um, decided, you know, somewhere in the midst of my second deployment that not only did I not want to be in it for a career, but thankfully, and a lot of my peers... um, Unfortunately, I can't say the same thing, but I knew exactly what I wanted to go do. Um, I had felt, fallen in love with campaign politics when I was in college and through some internships. You know, once I realized that, um, you know, moving along for, from the Army was the right decision for me, um, you know, I was, I was thankful to not only know what I wanted to go do, but, you know, have spent my entire time ever since, um, you know, I like to say serving in a different capacity, either helping get people elected to Congress. Um, you know, serving on Capitol Hill, or now I have the incredible fortune to, you know, to advocate uh, for my fellow veterans in my current role. Cool. Let's talk about your current role. What, um, what exactly do you do at IAVA? Um, so I'm the director of political and intergovernmental affairs. Um, it, by definition, um, I, I liaise with the administration, other veteran service organizations, um, but largely you know, I'm trying to leverage my experience as not only um, somebody who's well-versed in campaigns. I think a lot of advocacy work these days is, is done through running campaigns. Um, I also have a, uh, a media background. I was a press secretary and communications director before I was a campaign manager and a chief of staff. Um, And so, you know, I understand, or I'm very experienced in, you know, trying to develop campaigns and, achieve success, right? And so I want to be able to transfer those skills to building a campaign, say, behind um, women's veterans issues and making sure that we elevate them and get them recognized and are able to, um, you know, 
win the successes and advances that we've outlined in our policy agenda. Yeah, I was really impressed. I'm actually very, even more kind of stunned now that you tell me that women make up roughly 10% of the military, how big a focus IAVA has on women's issues. How did you guys, or maybe it was before your time, but how did they come to that um, decision to make women's issues such a big part of your agenda this year? Well, you know, especially um, for the 9-11, excuse me, the post-9-11 yes. generation of veterans, which, um, you know, IAVA is the leading voice um, when it comes to that generation of veterans, of which I'm, of course, a part of. Women are a much larger component of our generation of veterans or of any of the other sort of iterations. Um, I think a lot, a lot of the, the huge veteran populations, of course, are around the wars and not just people who served in between. Um, but because of that, when you look at the overall veteran population, women are not only the, um, the largest growing segment of the population, but we will have more women veterans over time than men, you know, or at least the yeah. population of women veterans is going to go up while at the same time, the male veterans are going to go down. And that's basically just because of the generational divide. You know, the World War II veterans are sadly being laid to rest these days. Um, but there are over 280,000 women veterans from the current wars or the most recent wars. And so we will make up a larger part of the women or excuse me, the veterans population. And so there's a lot of work to make sure that um, not just the Department of Veterans Affairs, but the entire uh community that supports veterans also recognizes that women too are veterans. So pick, pick just one, one area of women's concerns, women's vets concerns that you'd like, that you wish people knew more about and that you wish people would call their leaders to task for not addressing and say in their own policy agendas. What's like, pick, pick, pick your, your pet cause. Well, if I had to pick my pet cause, you know, I don't know that this is something that you can legislate, but I honestly think the biggest hurdle we have is, um, is a cultural one. You know, when people think of a veteran, they don't think of me. They don't. And there are countless women who will tell you stories of how they walked into the VA with their husband and the administrator or the doc who sees them when they come in the door um, walks up to their husband and says, you know, sir, what can I see you for today? And she has to like clear her throat and say, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm the veteran here and I'm hoping to be a patient <laughs> if you'll see me. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's, yeah. I mean, when I first went to the VA, um, you know, I was walking through the one in, uh, in DC, I just come off the campaign trail and this is pre healthcare reform. So yeah. <clears throat> it was nice to be able to go to the VA to get care. Um, Thankfully, this was also at a time where we were getting huge advances in terms of um, increases in veterans benefits. So they had extended VA health care normally goes to people who have what is called a service connected disability. I didn't have one of those, um, but they extended VA care to every Iraq and Afghanistan veteran for five years after they were discharged. So I went to go use the VA when I came off the campaign trail and I hadn't found my next job. Um, and walking through the hospital, got stopped in the hallway by an older gentleman who was probably from, you know, the Vietnam era or before trying to figure out the right way, I think, to like the oncologist was very convinced that <laughs> I think I worked there and I had to explain to him, sir, I have no idea where that's at. I'm a patient too. 
you know, as I'm wandering oh, sort of aimlessly through the hospital as well. Yeah. Oh, um, bless his heart. <laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, those are people who actually work in the veterans community, right? Yeah. Um, or fellow veterans. Uh, and so if we still have a, a bridge um, to build there, uh, just think about it or try to conceptualize what sort of the rest of America uh, has to do in terms of like being truly aware. Like, so I think in the abstract, everyone knows women are going into combat mm-hmm. and there are of course women veterans. Like it's not like it's totally lost on people, but, but when they think of veterans um, and what veterans need, it, it's still not being thought of that a woman could be right there shoulder to shoulder to a man. Yeah. And that's a problem. And, 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 that's, and think, that's, that's why Samantha B did a feature last week about a woman who needed a prosthetic foot uh, from, and, and yeah. they didn't have any feet for women. Did you see that? piece yes absolutely yeah. in fact i think our um our research director was uh a part of one of those um episodes or is, is possibly highlighted in there as well so when you when you go to the do you go to the doctor for your lady stuff do they know do they have like a pap smear equipment and breast cancer um, like mammogram machines and that kind of stuff so at that time when i was um a patient at the va i did actually go um for a pap smear. Um, It is still a challenge in some of the healthcare centers though, to have the right equipment. Um, You know, again, I think like, so you, you highlighted, um, you know, I believe a woman who needed a special prosthetic, but um, you know, it's, it's funny when, when you think about a veteran who is disabled or an amputee or whatever, we're able to, because we want to care for our veterans, we're able to meet the unique needs of that particular disabled veteran. Um, but in far too many areas, we're still not able to meet the unique needs of women. I would have to actually like uh, look at numbers if I was going to be able to cite them. Um, I am certainly not the research director or the, <laughs> uh, the expert in my current role, but, um, but there's, there's still a challenge um, in terms of making sure that, you know, when women walk into the VA that they're be able that they're able to get the care um, that men get in terms of like just meeting the, the standards of care. Um, so we have a presidential election happening and you are a person who knows quite a bit about campaigning and how to um, get people to vote for these people who want to be our leaders. Is there anyone on the debate stage on either side who's doing a good job with veterans issues? Well, here's what I would say. First of all, um, veterans aren't a part of the conversation as often as I think at IAVA we believe they should be. Um, And I would say, you know, we've looked closely at a lot of their policy proposals. Some of them are substantive. Some of them are a little weaker. In general, I think that we think that our policy priorities are the ones that, that we hope that they all speak to. But honestly, they're not speaking to veterans enough. I think that they're letting the community of veterans um, that exists in America, whether it's the World War II vets or um, the generation that I'm a part of fade a little bit as the wars have faded. And uh, to me, that is, I don't know. I think if you want to be the commander in chief, uh, if you want to preserve an all volunteer force where you hope uh, people will want to sign up and be a part of the best army uh, or Marine Corps in the world, you should, I would say, consider uh, what treatment of your veterans and sort of the care and concern that you have for your veterans does to people wanting to actually join in the first place. Um, There's a lot of talk about what wars are going to go into, how we're going to fight ISIS, 
um, what muscles we're going to flex. Um, and we're all too quick to ship people off, but missing from the conversation is how we're going to take care of them when we come home. And I think that if, if somebody doesn't know how they're going to get cared for when they go and fight for their country, they may hesitate a little bit before they sign up. Do you think we should have a draft? Oh, well, first of all, my personal opinions are definitely not ones <laughs> that, um, that matter for these purposes. Um, you know, what I can say from my personal experience is, is we continue to have the best um, and mightiest military in the world. Uh, and I appreciate serving next to people who want to be there. Mm. Um, and I think that we've got a great army. I was in the army, um, but a great military. But again, I would just say that, like, you know, we need to see uh, taking care of our veterans a little more as a national security issue. Um, that if we want to maintain a healthy volunteer force, um, we need to think about how we care for those folks after they go fight. Um, so I recently committed to a $22 monthly donation to help in IAVA's fight um, to deal with this suicide problem. Um, can you speak to why, what the significance of the number 22 is? Well, the significance of the number 22 is, um, unfortunately, 22 veterans take their lives every day. And it's something that not only our entire nation should be concerned about, but you know, if you're a vet yourself, you unfortunately know too many people who fall into that category. And I think... You know, this predates my time at IIDA, but I give the organization an incredible amount of create, uh, credit for just raising awareness of that issue. After raising awareness, you know, now we have to keep out the fight to address the problem. IAVA has also been on the front lines of doing that as well. I was chatting with one of my colleagues before I hopped on the phone with you today. It's, um, it's incredible to talk to some of our caseworkers who do, who do that work, um, who hop on the phone and not only try and diffuse the actual crisis of you know, whether it's somebody who is, is telling us quite literally that they are on the edge and looking over. Um, but sometimes, you know, there are people who are, who are in moments of crisis just before that, perhaps. But our caseworkers do an incredible job of not just diffusing that crisis, not just putting them on the phone with the veterans crisis line, uh, or excuse me, the veterans suicide crisis line, um, or getting them immediate help, say, at the VA. But they help to unearth the underlying issues, too, because it's the underlying issues. It's the economic insecurity. It's the fact that maybe they're homeless. It's the fact that maybe their husband left them that is potentially uh, compounding what may be some other sort of mental issue um, that is driving them to that state. So it's been, I, I will tell you, you know, I said I'm new to this organization. Um, you know, not only is it great that this is something that people are caring about, are aware of, and are rallying behind, but IEVA is an organization has not only been leading that fight, but, um, you know, I, I thank you actually for, um, you know, investing in the good work that we do here because there are caseworkers who are actually saving lives every day too. So what happens if, if somebody, if a soldier calls in and she's on the edge, she's got a gun in her hand, like what, what's the, what are the steps that these people do to try to help? I, I, I heard something about a phone chain to try and find a fellow vet that's in the area of this person. Is, is there, is, am I making that up or is that something that you guys are behind? Um, well, I believe that we have uh, a memorandum of agreement with the veterans suicide crisis line. Mm -hmm. um, so we, if, if folks call us here, they will absolutely engage with them directly on the phone um, you, and try and get them to the right professional to help them from there, whether it's physically in person or on a crisis line. 
Um, so that's something that IAVA is in a position to do. Um, in fact, I think they, the terminology is actually a hot transfer where they take somebody who is coming in in crisis and they're able to, to see through the handoff to, say, the mental health expert um, because a caseworker, um, regardless of their social worker training, sometimes isn't the best person to um, really resolve the issue. Um, but we are in a position to help transfer them to the right service from that point. So what does the $22, I'm on kind of a mission. I'm like everybody in my friends and family oh, yeah. circle, you guys are all signing up for 22 yeah. bucks a month. 22 bucks a month is not even like two movie tickets. So you guys all, everybody who's hearing my voice right now, go to IAVA.org slash donate and sign up for $22 a month. Allison, what does that do for you guys? Well, it does everything from not only supporting our uh, – our RRP program, which is the Rapid Response Referral Program, um, which is what I sort of described to this point, um, which has provided one-on-one support to more than 6,000 veterans uh, and their family members at this point. Um, but it also provides uh, peer-to-peer transition support to more than 27,000 veterans at this point. Um, we've also, you know, I talked a little bit about how the fact that people who come to us who are in crisis oftentimes have underlying issues. Mm. Um, so we've also helped a lot of veterans um, get connected to employment resources. Um, we also do troubleshooting um, in, in the uh, homelessness networks across the country. Our program, I believe, is, is one of a kind in terms of the fact that um, while we have on-the-ground presence in New York and California at this point, um, it is our RRP program that sort of spans the divide between coasts. Um, so people call us from a small community where maybe they have no idea where to get help mm-hmm. and we get them the help that they need. And oftentimes, you know, it's, I think that part of the, uh, the challenge of reducing 22 suicides a day isn't just saving the person who's on the ledge, but it's getting the people who need the help before they get to that point. Um, and so, you know, we, we are not only in a position, but we hope to continue to be in a position to not only um, save people who are on the edge, not only help um, troubleshoot problems before they get there, but, you know, something that IAVA has been successful for its entire, uh, a little over a decade at this point, has been advocacy. It is, as I said before, the leading voice for the post 9-11 generation. Um, and with a very loud voice in Washington, D.C., which is where I work and where I spend most of my time, is where we are advocating for the entire veteran community, especially those who are in this unfortunate category, and getting their representatives to act to make sure that they're not only passing good policy, but also funding good programs. I mean, the the Department of Veterans Affairs, unfortunately, has still had challenges, but as long as we keep at it and continue to make sure that the resources are there to help people, we can continue to chip away at this problem. So one last thing. How do you personally, sure. Allison, define success? What is it? What does that word mean to you? And how do you know if you're there or when you're there? Oh, like in my job or in my in life? In your life. In your whole person, your whole spiritual, oh. intellectual, physical person. So this is, um, uh, you know, my personal life goal, like if I want to be one thing more than anything else, it's to be authentic. Mm. Um, and, and for me, you know, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm committed to serve in whatever capacity I can do. Uh, 
I don't think that that's something that I got from my time in the military. I think that's what took me to the military. Um, and I think that's what took me to campaigns in Capitol Hill and where I am today. Um, you know, I also try to embody, embody a style of leadership that um, is values-based and, you know, I want to lead by example and build a better, stronger community and hopefully a better, stronger America by the time I'm ready to hang up my hat. I think that's a really good note to end on. Allison, where can people find you on the internet if they want to um, partake of your wisdom and humor? Which there's a lot. <laughs> we, didn't do, we didn't do a lot of joking around today in this interview, but you're a funny woman. So <laughs> where can people find you? Uh, we'll, we'll have to hang out at some other point. Well, yes, please. more than anything else, I would love for people to go to www.iava.org um, and learn about the great work that the organization that I'm currently at is doing. Um, it's important work. As I said, you know, unfortunately, um, well, actually, I'm happy that we are uh, drawing down the conflicts that we were in for, you know, since 2001. Mm. Uh, that's a great thing for our country. But just because the wars are ending doesn't mean that there aren't still, you know, great patriots who, who people need. It's, and it's not even like a helpless thing, right? There are some of us who are doing incredible things out there in the world, but, um, but you can't forget about that veterans community, whether it's the folks who are in crisis or those who just need to make sure that they have their GI Bill stay intact so they can build a better future for themselves and their family, um, which is something that, you know, I think is a, a small price for the 99% of folks who didn't serve in those wars mm. to pay. Yeah, absolutely agree. The website, again, is iava.org. Click the donate button, my friends. Click the donate button. Allison, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Hey, thank you for your support and, um, and having us on. I appreciate it. And that's going to wrap it up for this edition of How They Did It. If you would like to find Allison online, she is on Twitter at A-H-Jazzlow. That's A-H-J-A-S-L-O-W, where you can follow her adventures with IAVA and her um, her advocacy for her fellow veterans. Um, you can support this show. If you're listening to this in the future, say June of 2016 or beyond, I would be most grateful if you would hop over onto iTunes and subscribe to the show, write us a good review, View, give us a rating. Tell your friends about the show. Um, thanks very much to Girls Like Bass for our theme music. This song is called Shake It, and you might be doing that right now. Um, to find me online, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Darby W or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Darby. How They Did It is produced in partnership with Pregame Magazine. You can find more from the smart people at Pregame at pregamemagazine.com. And I hope you will join us in upcoming episodes, which will feature Liz Winstead, um, co-creator of The Daily Show, founder of Lady Parts Justice, Curtis Cook, who is an amazing actor, father, and lover of life. We have Joe Miller from Full Frontal. All kinds of goodness coming up in um, future episodes. So I hope that you will join us then. Thanks for listening.